This is Westall Road. Yep. Oh, that's pretty burbsy. It is. Mm. Alright, and then what, we're turning to Osborne? We're going onto Osborne Road, which is the road that the Grange is on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty suburbanite. Mm. Um, Lots of 60s brick, like brick veneer. We're in the Grange now, which looks like a bit of a park with some trees. In my mind, I kind of imagined it was like a big bush area that was enclosed by trees. Yeah, it's quite open. Although, look, over there there's a big tree park. We'll go and have it a little explore. So the centerpiece of the playground is a spaceship-like shaped, what would you call it, like cubby house? Playhouse thing, yeah. Okay, so it's a bit cramped. You'd hope that the real UFO wasn't this cramped. Oh! I can go in there. Go for it. So there's a couple of slides. Little girl that we just interrupted is having a go now. Uh-oh. Oh, there's a spider. <laughs> it is a good spot for a picnic. And I'm sure it was then too. So it's pretty crazy to think that this was, you know, such a big site of contention, I guess, at the yeah. time. It's a, you know, hot spot. So yeah, this is like, you know, in all of the stories you read about Westall, all of the witness reports, they all mention the Grange. Yeah, this is it. This is it. So this is where it would have hovered and where the, they would have felt the heat. Maybe it was about as big as this one is. Probably didn't have the slides. <laughs> children off it. Probably didn't have the children running off it. At 11am on the 6th of April 1966 in Clayton, Victoria, over 200 children and teachers claimed to have witnessed a silver dish-shaped object flying over Westall Primary and Westall High School before it zoomed off into a nearby paddock. Many of the students followed the object into the paddock. Some even claimed they were so close they could touch it, feeling the heat radiating off the thing before it shot off into the sky and disappeared. The mass sighting would become known as Westall 66. Welcome to Dead and Buried, a series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne. And beyond. I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Carly Godden. This episode, we tell the story of one of Australia's most renowned and mysterious UFO sightings. Okay, so examining a UFO sighting as a history podcast may initially sound a bit unusual. But I think setting aside any personal feelings on the existence of aliens, you've got over 200 people who say they were witness to Westall 66. That's fascinating and a significant event in our recent history. And it's happening at a time when other UFO sightings also came into focus. You'll hear more about this topic from Dr. Martin Plowman, who has travelled the world investigating UFO sightings and ufologists. 
and we were also fortunate enough to speak to two of the Westall witnesses, Terry and Pauline. Okay, full disclosure, I'm not sure that I'm a kind of true believer myself. <laughs> well, in this episode, I'm definitely the Mulder and you're the Scully. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> well, because I'm not originally from Victoria, I didn't hear about this story until I started working in the archives. And one of my colleagues told me how his mum was one of the witnesses. And I was a bit obsessed after that. I devoured all written material and the documentaries too. I should tell those at home that I was raised in an alien positive household, so much so that my mother, a self-proclaimed star child, was apparently a quarter alien. <laughs> so that makes you like, what, a, an eighth alien? I guess so. Uh, so like your obsession is just really trying to get in touch with your people then? <laughs> I don't know about that, but I am a genealogist, so, well, you know, really, I want to be a believer. But until an alien comes along and shakes my hand, I can only look at these things curiously and objectively. Yeah, well, I was raised in a much more kind of cut and dry household. So my mum's an academic, although my dad was in the army and he was there for almost 20 years. So maybe there's some secrets there. I bet there's definitely some conspiracies there. Speaking of conspiracies, what makes this story even more intriguing is the lack of official documentation. Trust me, we've looked far and wide, and so have many other people, including archivist Dr. Sebastian Gochulo. But you'll hear more about that later. I don't, don't think I'd call myself fully a believer, and I'm not quite a ufologist either. Probably I'm a ufologyologist, is what I come closest to identifying as. That's Dr. Martin Plowman, a self proclaimed ufologist ologist. So to be clear, that's someone who studies those who study the reports, visual records, physical evidence and other phenomena related to unidentified flying objects. Martin did a PhD in cultural studies at the University of Melbourne, which focused on the history of people's belief in UFOs. This culminated in the publication of his history come travel book, The UFO Diaries. I think one of the big attractions about UFOs and about wanting to believe in UFOs, like the famous poster in in Agent Mulder's office in the X-Files, I want to believe, is that um, UFOs are the unknown and they're also possibly the unknowable. The UFO Diaries is a fantastic worldwide exploration of UFO hotspots and those who are obsessed with alien culture. I really liked it. Mm, yeah, same. Okay, so there's a discernible psychological appeal to aliens, especially for those who feel like they've encountered them. But, you know, being the cynical, sceptical person that I am, what I really wanted to hear from Martin was what were his views on what was going on in the world at the time, which may have triggered this whole modern fascination with UFOs and aliens. From the sort of research I've done, um, I think the reason why UFO sightings became so big from the 1950s onwards is pretty much about uh, the start of the Cold War. I reckon that's what really kick-started this fascination and a little bit of also apprehension about what might be out there beyond Earth. Um, and UFOs also, as we know them today, started in America. So this was um, in the late 40s, the very first UFO sighting that we sort of count as like um, the start of the modern era of ufology was in 1947 as well. That was the, um, the Kenneth Arnold sighting over Washington State. And he was the person who actually coined the phrase flying saucers. So there have been lots of sightings of strange things in the skies before that including even in 1946, there was the, the ghost rockets that were seen over Scandinavia and, and earlier again too. But nobody had actually made that sort of connection between UFOs being 
extraterrestrial aircraft or spacecraft that were coming here and observing us. That happened after um, World War II because suddenly I think we had the technology to actually get to space. And particularly the US and the Soviet Union were, were doing this. So with the realisation that Earth people could actually go into space very soon, that this wasn't science fiction, came the second realisation that if we could do it, and we were just at the start of this journey, there could be other civilizations out there in space that were already far ahead of us and were coming here. Yep, sci-fi coming to life. Man walking on the moon means aliens most certainly can come and visit us. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see the link. But maybe it was also something to do with political manoeuvrings occurring both globally and a little closer to home. The other thing that happened at the start of the Cold War was that um, both the Soviet Union and the United States were terrified that the other one was developing secret weapons they didn't know about. Um, so there was this um, anxiety and this tension in, in both of, the, of the, um, the superpowers of looking in the skies all the time in case one of these secret weapons was being used. And this was very much tied up um, with the early fears about UFOs. A lot of national governments around the world, including here in Australia, were more worried about it being a, a, a Soviet or a communist um, secret weapon than it being an actual spacecraft from outer space. I'm a steve-walking cheetah with a hat full of napalm I'm a runaway son of the nuclear A-bound I'm Terry Peck and I was a student at Westall High School back in 1966 um, when uh, the flying saucer episode happened, um, which some people know about and a lot of people don't know about it. That's Terry, one of our witnesses who was a student at Westall High at the time of the incident. Okay, so my name's Pauline and um, I grew up in Melbourne. I have travelled a bit, but I'm definitely still a Melbourne person. I love Melbourne. And that's Pauline, who was also one of the students who says she witnessed the UFO. Terry and Pauline were kind enough to invite us into their homes to discuss their memories of what went down at Westall High and Westall Primary School on Wednesday the 6th of April 1966, just a few days before the Easter break. I was um, a student back in 1966 at Westall High School and I was out on the Oval playing cricket when something really unusual happened. Um, to this day, I'm still not exactly sure what it was, but it was pretty amazing. Um, we were playing cricket and um, all of a sudden people started to look up in the sky. Some girls came running in really, really excited and worked up going, there's a UFO outside, there's a UFO outside. And um, they said something like, some of the girls are so scared, they're out doing PE, they had to come in. They were all really frightened. And so my response was, yeah, sure, something's going on. Someone's, you know, made up this story and everyone's got infected and I don't believe it. That was, I was really sceptical when I went out. So, of course, it was very, there was a lot of buzz and people talking about it and everyone getting excited, you can imagine, young adolescents. So, um, of course, we all went out and um, we went out to the school oval. We were playing cricket and um, all of a sudden people started to look up in the sky and when I looked I could see um, one at first, a, a round silver disc that 
appeared to be just what you would imagine a flying saucer would look like. Sure enough, I looked up in the, we looked in the sky and there was this white, glowing, elliptical, semi-elliptical, not fully round for me, object coming up into the sky, moving across and then going down behind the trees again. And it, it wasn't doing this in a rhythmic pattern at all. So it wasn't like pulsing or doing anything rhythmically. It had a kind of its own different motions. It was doing various manoeuvres going up and down. And the amazing thing was I wasn't at all scared. My friends and I weren't the least bit scared and just thought, wow, this is amazing. There really is a UFO. And we just sat down and watched and... Um, Oh, yeah, there's a beeping. Oh, it's just stopped. So Pauline's alarm went off just at that moment in her story, which is almost serendipitous timing because the alarm had been raised at the Westall schools. By now, most of the students were outside looking at the UFO. We sat down watching and by then, you know, there was a lot. Most of the school, I would say, was out there on the Oval, students walking around and sitting down. The weather was must have been quite reasonable, I think, so it was... If anything, I would say amongst us it was kind of a festive atmosphere. You know, we felt really quite interested and happy and amazed and just sat there watching. I think, you know, the bell rang to come in and, of course, we totally ignored it. It just seemed quite irrelevant. <laughs> we weren't going to go into school when you're watching a, a UFO. And um, so we just sat there and talked amongst ourselves and just kept observing it, moving up and down and doing various things. With such an exciting event occurring, the teachers would have had almost no hope of controlling the kids. Our deputy principal, Mr Muller, I remember him coming around and trying to act really fierce, but I always knew he was quite a nice, kind man underneath it, but he was trying to be really fierce with us all, saying, right, that's it, you all have to go inside this instant. And... Um, the fascinating thing for me was I remember looking up, I was sitting down and we, I looked up at him and he was standing over our group, gesturing to the school and telling us to go back inside and um, the UFO was moving. It was travelling through the sky and um, I think, I'm not sure about my directions, okay, but I would have thought it was travelling maybe towards Dandenong, but I'm not sure. It was now like a what I can only describe it as a white glowing light that was elliptical that looked light and made of light and yet solid as well that sounds contradictory but that's just how I have to describe it and it was certainly moving much faster than any plane and it was going through the sky through the clouds traveling off and I remember looking at my deputy principal and thinking but I never said anything to him. Why don't you just turn around and look up? Look at it. It's going through the sky and how fast it is. And um, it dis disappeared. It went into the distance and uh, we all had to get up and go inside. Not everyone went back inside, though. And some of the kids said they saw more than one UFO. Here's Terry. Anyway, we kept looking and there were actually three of them. And uh, myself being a little bit of a daredevil at school, as I was, I ran towards the corner of the um, sports ground where it appeared that one of them was um, going down quite low 
and it actually appeared to be going down behind the Grange, which the Grange was an area where we used to go to do our cross-country runs um, and we could actually hop over the school fence and get to that quite quickly. So over I went. I wouldn't these days, mind you. I'd be running the opposite direction. But over I went and I ran down our usual little cross-country run towards where I thought it had gone down behind the huge pine trees. And lo and behold, I got to an area where it was right in front of me. And two of the other girls had actually beaten me to the spot, but one of them appeared to be fainted on the ground and the other one was screaming hysterically. And I was just in shock, so I was just standing there. It all happened so quickly that it was pretty hard to take it all in. But it was in front of me, either on the ground or hovering above the ground. And it started to lift off very slowly at first and then it just turned on its side um, and just went zoom straight up in the air so fast that it was unbelievable. Um, it appeared to have purpley blue lights all around it. It was probably about one and a half size of a station sedan um, and behind it it left all the grass in that circle not quite burnt, but all yellowed and flattened. Um, I could feel a heat coming off it. Um, it was making a really low buzzing sound. And that was about it. It happened so fast. Um, and then I, I went back to the school. The other two girls had um, gotten up and we'd all gone back to the school. interesting and in some ways very normal to expect disparities between the recollections of those who are involved in the same event. While there are many similarities between both Pauline and Terry's explanation of what happened, there are also some notable differences, such as how many UFOs were present, whether there were any aircraft pursuing them, what the UFOs looked like, and how long they hovered over the school before taking off to the Grange. True, and they may have been at different vantage points, which could affect what they actually saw, and the mind can focus in on more certain details rather than others, especially when recalling situations from such a young age. Another noteworthy difference in their recollections is on the topic of the elusive Tanya. An ambulance was actually called for Tanya, the girl that was passed out on the ground, um, and she was taken off in the ambulance. And... I was friends with Tanya. I used to call in um, sometimes on my way to school and walk to school with her. She uh, was Yugoslav. Her parents didn't understand a lot of English. Um, and then she just never came back to school. I never saw her again. Um, so, you know, that was a bit of a mystery as well. And one of the girls actually visited her house and was told that she just wasn't there. That was about it. We couldn't get any information. And, you know, I never saw anyone collapse and I never saw an ambulance. And that puzzled me unless it came in at the front of the school near the school office because where we were, we saw quite a clear view of the road at the front of the school and alongside the school. 
because we were out on the corner section of the school grounds with the open oval and grass. So I never saw an ambulance come over there, but maybe it could have come at the front of the school. I wouldn't have seen it, but I never heard, I didn't even hear about the girl collapsing. But, you know, maybe I was in the younger classes and people didn't tell us. I have no idea, but I never heard anything about it. So that surprised me. When I saw the documentary, I went, gee, I didn't know that happened. Okay, but just because Pauline didn't hear about the ambulance and Tanya until many years later, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. As Pauline said, she just might not have known who Tanya was. Yeah, seems like the case. The Tanya story is quite intriguing, though. I've followed various Westall groups on Facebook and online, and there is much talk about what happened there. Why did she collapse? Shock? Did she touch the UFO? We don't know. But apparently she's now living in Sydney and does not want to discuss it at all. I'd love to know what really happened, though. Yeah, me too. Although the Tanya aspect isn't the only point of contention. There are multiple reports that after the UFO took off, government officials arrived and wandered about the scene. The school also allegedly warned the students not to speak about what happened. We were all threatened not to talk about it at all. Um... I didn't talk about it very much. I just sort of went home and told mum about it and my sister. Some of the girls did talk about it. um, There was an article in the Dandenong Journal. Um, I think maybe one of them was interviewed on TV that night on Channel 9. Um, But I was one of the ones that didn't really talk about it. Um, We had an assembly at school and we were all told that it was nothing. It was just an experiment. or a weather balloon. We were told a few different scenarios and all told not to talk about it or we'd get detention. I never saw any government officials, but I did get told about them from other students. So I had no reason not to believe them and that someone came and took a camera. The camera. Yeah, the camera. Mm. Reportedly, it wasn't only the students that saw the UFO. You'd assume with such a massive event like that, all the teachers who were present would have seen it as well. Although it's been widely reported that they were also warned not to talk about it. One teacher apparently took photographs, but government officials took her camera away. Various locals also came forward with their version of events. And many say that in the days following, somebody, whether it be the Australian or US government or a local UFO group, were at the site investigating, in particular the area in the Grange where the UFOs had apparently landed. They came out the next day and there was orange fencing put around the paddock. Um, None of us were allowed to go in there um, or go anywhere near it. There were uh, men in, like, some type of army uniforms or some sort of military uniforms all hovering around the place with these sort of sticks like Geiger counters or something. It was just all very, very mysterious. And there were officials there looking at the flattened circle. Although my father thought they were people from the, or maybe they told him that, from the UFO, you know, people that chased them up. That's who he thought they were. He didn't say they were army or military. He thought they were people that follow up sightings.
So apparently at the time, the sighting was investigated in an unofficial way by two Australian groups. The Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society, or VFSRS for short, (laughs) and the Phenomenon Research Australia, the PRA, both of which conducted interviews and reviewed the site. Though they reported on the incident and stated that they had made contact with the Royal Australian Air Force, or the RAAF, who stated that there was no reports of aircraft in the area at the time. However, some students and teachers say that they saw dapperly dressed men in black types investigating the scene, as well as Air Force and maybe even US Air Force officials, although no official report or statement were made by the Australian military. However, the Weather Bureau said that it was most likely a weather balloon. Okay, so with reports of somebody investigating and over 200 people witnessing the event, logically, you'd think there'd be a mega amount of newspaper and media reporting on the incident, right? Yep, and frankly, there just wasn't. There are a few newspaper reports, sure, but it wasn't reported all that widely. And the reports that do exist, well, they discuss how the people present were all forbidden from giving eyewitness accounts. They also make the event sound either fanciful or blow it off as an errant weather balloon. Yeah, and I also heard there was a Channel 9 news segment at the time, but the footage is lost, and when inquiring minds went looking for the original tapes, the canister was empty. Yep, it's pretty crazy. And in terms of government records, I spent a heck of a lot of time looking through the Public Records Office catalogue for Victorian government records on the incident. But in the government vaults, there was nothing of note at least in terms of records on open access. Yeah, although that isn't completely unusual, as you'd think UFO-related archives would be kept by the Defence Forces and their federal agencies. That's right. And I also searched through the National Archives records, speaking of which, and while there are whole fat volumes on UFO sightings and reports, there are none relating to Westall. And emails asking their reference department about those records, well, they came back with no knowledge of a report or any particular records relating to the sighting. Well, almost, but we'll get to that part in a minute. Yeah, so you're not the only one to have looked into this. Far from it. I approached our colleague, archivist and academic researcher, Sebastian, who a few years ago also became intrigued by the Westall incident. What I know about the Westall UFO incident mainly comes from uh, the Canberra academic uh, and amateur investigator Shane Ryan and what he's done, particularly in his uh, in the documentary that he um collaborated on with Rosie Jones and Carmel McLuhan. Uh, It came out in 2010. After watching the documentary, I was so astounded by the nature of the incident and how many witnesses were involved that I almost had to go and verify for myself that it really happened. After watching the documentary, I went to the State Library and found the published stories on the incident in the Dandenong Journal and also in The Age. I I was so fascinated that I then contacted Rosie Jones, who was one of the filmmakers, and we uh, got together and met and discussed uh, the project that she worked on, the documentary, at length. Um, We talked through all the issues that she encountered, trying to get information about the incident, uh, the fact that she had done some archival research but really couldn't find all that much specifically relating to the Westall incident. we um, discussed possibilities for records uh, that you know I could help with helping her research uh, in my own time. This is the biggest mass UFO sighting in Australia, yet it seems to have been suppressed, deliberately kept out of the public view. Like the witnesses, 
I want to find out why. So it was this documentary, Westall 66, A Suburban UFO Mystery, that was given to me to watch when I first heard the story. All right. And it intrigued me too. So uh, did he find anything relevant? I haven't been able to find any records relating directly to the UFO sighting at Westall, but I have come across a tantalising hint in my view in one file relating to, the, to a response to a letter that was written by someone at Channel 9 News Department on the 7th of April. 1966, so the day after the incident. And the letter, you kind of have to read in between the lines to, because the letter itself is not available. All we have in that file is the response to the letter from somebody who's working in PR at the Department of Air. So just to be clear, this is unrelated to that empty Channel 9 newsreel canister we mentioned before. I asked him to read the letter out. The letter in question is dated the 14th of April 1966. It's it's addressed to General Television Corporation Proprietary Limited, News Department, 22 to 46 Bendigo Street, Richmond, Victoria. Attention, Mr Gordon Lee, presumably the person who wrote the letter to the Department of Air. The letter reads, Dear Sir, 1. The enclosed summaries should provide you with some of the material you want for your documentary feature on unidentified flying objects. Two, the procedure for making a report is explained in paragraph eight of the summarised address by Mr B.G. Roberts. And the reason why the Department of Air and the RAAF are interested in sightings is touched upon at paragraph six. And finally, how an investigation proceeds depends upon the completeness and timeliness of a report and is explained at paragraph seven. No single RAAF unit has been made specifically responsible for investigating reported sightings. Three, for interview material, we recommend that you approach the Commonwealth Aerial Phenomenon Investigation Organisation, which has its headquarters at 100 Collins Street, Melbourne, Victoria. For your letter dated 7th of April 1966 refers. Yours faithfully, G.J. Odgers, Director of Public Relations at the Department of Air. But what might this letter mean? From this letter, which doesn't mention Westall at all, but it is responding to a letter by somebody at Channel 9 who presumably uh, is responsible for the news gathering there. Um, it was written, that letter was written on the 7th of April and reading in between the lines, you could probably say, okay, so, you know, uh, they were writing into the Department of Air saying, look, do you have, any, do you have anything about UFOs? Uh, because we really want to do something on, on, you know, a documentary on UFOs and uh, they might have even mentioned, you know, do you know about the Westall incident that happened yesterday? Uh, what, what, what usually happens when somebody reports a UFO? Is anybody interested about that sort of thing in the government or in the military or in the Air Force? Um, what, how do you go about investigating it? What do you do? What are the time frames? Uh, what kind of reports do you do? Um, and then, you know, maybe something else that was in that letter. Is there anybody that we could talk to at the department about this sort of thing? Um, you know, considering all this, you know, this, this great big incident that's happened at Westall yesterday, uh, it'd be really good to talk to people who might have some information about it. So where's the original letter? Sebastian asked the National Archives about this and he received the following reply, and I'm going to quote now. 
It appears that the initial correspondence from Mr Gordon Lead of GTV9 is missing due to poor record keeping. It may be that the department was receiving a large number of UFO-related inquiries at the time and did not feel it necessary to retain all correspondence on file. But that is merely conjecture on my part, end quote. Right, so basically, who knows? Or maybe it was removed and added to a central Westall UFO file somewhere down the road and now it's kept under lock and key by some government bigwigs. All right, well, I'm not ruling that out entirely, but I think at this stage, that kind of scenario is purely conjecture on your part. Touché. Okay, so basically not much seems to be officially available regarding Westall. But what kind of records are there generally uh, out there about UFOs and UFO sightings? Yeah, as far as I know, there are quite a lot of records relating to UFOs, mainly at the federal level, so in the National Archives of Australia. And the records that are available, they cover all sorts of things like sightings, but also policy about how these things were going to be dealt with. So they're mainly coming from departments such as the Department of Air, which was the bureaucratic wing of the Air Force, and various other agencies involved with military matters. So apart from the records that are in the National Archives, both myself and also people like Rosie Jones and others have tried to find records relating specifically to Westall in state archives. But as I said earlier, we, we, hadn't, we haven't found anything. Even though there seems to be this abundance of records in, that have been released from the National Archives, the majority of it is a little bit boring, I have to say. It's, it's um, the, the kinds of sightings are often unspectacular. They don't involve 200-plus witnesses um, and seem to be about relatively small pricks of light in, in distance or other objects that could easily be mistaken. Um, uh, you know, they could be planes, they could be stars, that sort of thing that could be mistaken for something unusual but actually are probably just normal things. For such a grand event, what kind of archival records should exist? In the world of archives, there are some very uh, stringent preservation and retention requirements, usually in regard to records, how they're kept, uh, how long they're kept, um, what kind of conditions they need to be kept under. Uh, And one of the principles underlying the whole idea of creating records is that there's some form of accountability Uh, to the people that the government serves. That is always something um, that a good public servant bears in mind and also an archivist who's trying to preserve that evidence bears in mind that part of what they're doing is is aiding in accountability of people who wield power on behalf of the citizens to be accountable for what they do. Okay, so from an archival point of view, the kinds of records that you'd expect to exist about an incident like this involving so many children under the care of uh, adult teachers would be that they would somehow be accounting for the fact that the, sc- uh, the kids at the school ran amok one morning, that there was mayhem, that there was confusion. Uh, what actually happened? Uh, these kids are under the care of the teachers. You would expect them to somehow be accountable for what happened, for the fact that the kids left the school grounds, uh, some of them chasing this thing to the Grange Reserve and uh, by all accounts a couple of them uh, were 
in such a condition that they fainted and had to be hospitalised or taken by an ambulance at the very least. What, what happened? The teachers are responsible for the kids so that you'd think that there would be some attempt to account for what happened in that way. Now, if there were police there, you'd expect them to file some sort of report. If the ambulance was there, you'd expect them to mention that they attended. If there were any armed forces, you would think that they'd be making some sort of report. Uh, if Australian public servants were on site doing some sort of work there about managing the whole incident, you would expect them to be writing something up about it. Now, maybe some of the records have yet to come to light. I know, for, for instance, that there are police records at the police museum. They're currently in the closed, what, what's in, what in archives is called the closed period. They, uh, there's information in them that is covered by, probably by some form of privacy provision. And also, from what I've heard, the records uh, need some work to get them into a more discoverable and accessible form as well. Uh, basically to make them better organised to reflect um, the record-keeping system that's what they're showing evidence of so that it can be made, so that it can be accessed, so that it can be understood. All right, so we can speculate that there certainly should have been more or at least some records created in relation to Westall 66. Equally, though, it's not unheard of for records to simply be lost over time or accidentally destroyed. Yep, that's a fair point. But how do we know that the records weren't created but are now being concealed? And this is where things go a little bit X-Files. For such a massive event, there should certainly be some records, but there doesn't seem to be, or at least no records that we, the public, can access. It really is the biggest mass UFO sighting in Australian history, and somehow it's largely gone um, unremarked, unnoticed, and maybe even suppressed. Conspiracies regarding national secrets are not new, but what if the Westall incident wasn't just a weather balloon as was reported at the time, but something else? Actual extraterrestrial intelligence, or government testing, or something that we don't have the capacity to understand yet? Would that be reason enough for the government to put a lock on those records, or remove them completely? Here's Sebastian again. There might be other pressures that come into play in these sorts of situations. Um other agendas, particularly when it comes to, a, say, a matter of secrecy uh, or national security. In the Westall documentary, Lieutenant Colonel Neil Smith proposes uh, that um, the records containing secrets might be destroyed in the interests of national security, having in mind the possibility that Westall was some kind of you know, secret military test. The idea that what the witnesses were actually seeing were weapons or military aircraft testing is definitely one of the more favoured theories. And if that's correct, you absolutely wouldn't want this information to leak to your enemies. 
And another point to consider is all the intense paranoia and fear that the Cold War inspired in both the general public and the government. Here's Martin. So as you guys have found yourselves, there's not a lot of um, official records of, um, of what happened with the Westall UFO sighting. Um, and a lot of people have, over the years have suggested that this is because it was covered up, that there's a government cover-up um, in place here. And um, I think that could be possible because of the Cold War. This was in 1966, and um, like we mentioned before, during the Cold War, a lot of governments around the world were terrified of secret weapons or other or spy devices being used by their ideological enemies. The other type of thing that a lot of governments were terrified about during the Cold War was mass hysteria. They were worried that if um, something spooked the population, we'd all crumble all of a sudden and the communists would come in and, and, and take over. This is, this is true. The US and Great Britain and here in Australia and, and other countries in, in Europe as well were, were really worried about this happening. So, yeah, look, that could have been a motivation for a cover-up, perhaps. The RAAF or other elements of the Australian government were worried that all these kids telling stories all at the same time, 200 of them, that this could sort of spread and become something like mass hysteria. So maybe they were trying to shut it down for that reason as well. Also, it's important to mention that this kind of mass sighting was in no way an unusual event at this time. Everyone knows about the Roswell incident of 1947, but there are many lesser-known incidents around this time. For example, the Kecksburg UFO sighting of 1965, in which residents of six US and Canadian states saw a fireball dropping debris and breaking the sound barrier before it fell to Earth. That site was also cordoned off, and there was talk of a cover-up and intimidation of journalists and citizens. At the time, they said it was a meteor, and later, a Russian satellite. And you have the well-documented 1965 craft landing on the Pretoria Broncosprite Freeway in South Africa. The 30-foot-wide copper craft was observed by police officers before taking off. This sighting was confirmed to the press by the Army. And a few days after the Westall incident, police in Ohio pursue what they believe to be a UFO for 30 minutes before one of the cops had to stop for gas and the craft zoomed off into the sky. And that's but the tip of the iceberg. UFO sightings are a dime a dozen in the years following World War II. And you may ask, why so many in the US? Their love of science fiction or something else? So there are quite a lot of other stories from that sort of early Cold War era that are connected um, between UFOs and military testing. And, and that's because I think there was a lot of secret military testing going on all around the world, here in Australia, but also obviously in the States and, and in the Soviet Union as well. It's no, I think, coincidence that in, in Nevada and in New Mexico, um, there were many, many UFO sightings in the early 50s because at that time there was also many, many secret weapons being tested. And this is now verifiable fact. Um, the V-2 rockets were being tested. They were being shot for miles in the, in the huge uh, range that's now um, part of White Sands um, in New Mexico and also what's now Area 51 in, in Nevada. And um, this kept on going. It's still going on. You can't get into Area 51. It's a real place. I, I tried going there when I was in Nevada and it's in the emptiest, most desolate part of the US. It's like the outback. It, one thing that I think Australians forget about the US is that it's just as big as Australia and some parts of it are empty and that is one of them. It's intimidatingly remote. And of course, it's not just remote, it's also well guarded. There's, um, you can see these sort of like weapon posts like machine gun 
posts kind of hidden in the desert, uh, not so hidden that you don't see them, to keep you away. So yeah, there's uh, there's lots of uh, incidences of of UFOs and military testing being connected, and maybe it's a case of secret weapons being seen by um, local population, or maybe it's something else. We've now heard of a few of the sightings from the Cold War era, although admittedly it also bothers me that we somehow don't have these hyper-fast streamlined craft now. I mean, surely, you know, okay, maybe they've been kept as a military secret, but with the abundance of smartphones around, isn't it likely by now that we'd have plenty of photographic evidence? Which we just don't. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm always looking at the sky and waiting. You'd think in a time of ever-increasing technological advancement and digital surveillance that we'd have the ability to better document and provide evidence of these weird flying things in the sky. Or maybe the UFOs from mid-century were our little alien friends, and they observed us and came to the conclusion that, nah, this planet sucks, let's get the hell out of here. Or maybe they were just kites, weather balloons, birds, clouds? Yeah, maybe. I mean, we even visited the West Door site ourselves to get a sense of what it might have been like, some of which you heard in the introduction to this episode. Area that was enclosed by trees. Yeah, it's quite open. Although, look... So perhaps visiting a site over 50 years later isn't going to reveal too much more. But seriously, though, what do you think they saw that day, Carly? Well, okay, so I believe that there was some kind of unusual craft in West Hall... But if I had to make a call on it without any further physical evidence to the contrary, I'd put my money on it being military testing. But yeah, what do you think, Lee? Yeah, I don't really know. I want it to be aliens, of course. I I think most people would. But I feel it's more likely to have been a military aircraft. However, if so, as we said just before, where is that aircraft now? Mm. So many questions. Anyway, I feel like our witnesses should have the final word. I'm convinced that it was something from another planet because where else would it have come from? You know, they, they weren't doing any testing at the time and, and, and if they were doing testing about 50 years ago of something like that, some sort of craft, it would have come to light by now for sure. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's just a bit of romanticism that I have but I'm thinking that it is definitely something from another planet. I've thought about it. Um, I think... For years, I probably thought it was a UFO with, you know, intelligence from some other place. But um, then when I read some of the stuff and the documentary and the talk about the planes near it and the officials coming along, and it made me wonder whether it was military technology, which seems rather extraordinary, but... Um, So, look, I've got an open mind. It seems like there is always this human battle between being rational and scientific or perhaps, kind of like what Martin said earlier, letting yourself believe in something you can't prove but just may be possible. Or if we go by the law of attraction, everything is possible. (sighs) 
<laughs> I'm more of an Occam's razor fan myself. Though I guess I'm open to the possibility of aliens. I mean, the universe is infinite. And purely as a numbers game, it seems absurd to think that we're the only ones in it. I know, right? So maybe, Carly, you want to believe too? Maybe. But I'd say hang on to that X-Files poster for now. It's not going on my wall just yet. I think that there's like an almost 100% certainty that there is life on other planets. Um, I've got young children and I read them books about space and aliens. And it's funny, when I read an old book that was one of my books when I was a kid, it talks about, oh, there, yeah, there might be life. We haven't found any, any other planets yet. I read them a book from today and there's like, we've got evidence that there's hundreds, thousands of, of extrasolar planets. And that's just a small part of the, of the galaxy that we've been able to look at yet. I think with that many star systems and planets out there, there is life out there, almost certainly. It would be a fluke if there wasn't. But whether it's coming here in circular spacecraft and, and buzzing drivers at night or flying around government installations, I'm not so sure about. It, it's possible. Um, the thing about being aliens is that we may not ever be able to understand what, how aliens think or how they live or operate. We may not even be able to recognise them as other creatures. We don't know because we've never sort of had that experience yet, I don't think. I, I don't think they're coming here yet, but, but I could be wrong and I'd like to be wrong, but I'm not sure. This episode was produced, researched and written by me, Lee Hooper, with editing and production support by Carly Godden. Mixing, audio production and the original score was by Christian O'Brien and Valium Music. Our Dead and Buried theme music is by Robin Waters. You can find the full list of music credits on our website. To dive even deeper into this intriguing topic, you can find Martin Plowman's book, The UFO Diaries, on online bookstores. And to watch the documentary we discussed, Westall 66, A Suburban UFO Mystery, well, you can purchase your very own copy online at westall66ufo.com.au. You can explore the original evidence we use to build our stories at deadandburiedpodcast.com. Connect with us on social media and discover more Dead and Buried episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Even better, leave a review to help spread the word. Season 2 of Dead and Buried was assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its Arts Funding and Advisory Body, and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. <laughs>